So we can't do the French Revolution without really digging deep into, you know, the place that you and I probably came from, the bourgeoisie, the middle class, the bourgeois. So we're going to dig into it. What was it and how was it so powerful in the Western world? So the bourgeoisie came into prominence in a historical and political sense during the 11th century. It's earlier than you think, right? Coincided with the transformation of Central and Western European burgs, towns, villages, cities, into urban centers focused on trade and artistic and guild-based activities. So let's use historical Paris as our example. A bourgeois was customarily an individual affiliated with one of the corporations or guilds that operated during the Ancien Régime, the legal and social order before the revolution. They also had to possess a residence for at least a year and a day, whether as a tenant or an owner, just to qualify. This requirement extended to public roles like provost of the merchants, alderman, or consul. So in Paris, the bourgeoisie had, of course, both rights and responsibilities. They were exempt from the taille tax, T-A-I-L-L-E, that's the peasant land tax, but they did have an obligation to fulfill city tax payments. They had to support public charitable efforts, and they had to bear the cost of their own weaponry and participate in the urban militia. At the moment, you can lure people into the cities, you can tax them more easily, and you can conscript them more easily. I'm sure that a lot of the conscription kind of people who wanted to drag the Roman youth into the army, when they went into the remoter regions of the empire, they probably didn't come back. A lot easier to bury somebody who's trying to conscript you than to go and fight in some 20-year useless war, which might get you a couple of acres afterwards. So this is the emergence of a middle class, right? So it's a fourth part of society, right? At the ruling monarchy and the nobility, right? The, the kings and the dukes and so on. And you had the clergy and you had the peasants, I guess is the fifth. And then you had the middle class, but they held real economic influence which translated into a growing measure of real power in French society. It's a lot easier to collect coins than it is to collect bread, because coins don't go bad, and bread does. It's a lot more efficient to tax a city than it is to tax thousands of square miles of countryside with uncertain roads. It's a lot easier to control and bully and subjugate the middle class than it is the peasant class, and of course, you can't really do it with the clergy, and you can't really do it with the nobility, who tend to be quite well-armed and have a lot of soldiers. So, Let's talk a little bit about where are they coming from and what do they mean. Well, when you start to have property rights, when you start to have some early vestiges of free trade, and when the countryside is being rationalized, in other words, you start off with a bunch of land in a family and then you have a bunch of kids and you subdivide it and then they subdivide it and it just gets increasingly ridiculous. It sort of reminds me when I was in junior high school, I had to design in art class some stained glass. And I remember designing some, a beautiful sort of dragon and, and yet the teacher said it was impractical because if you looked at 
some of the glass would have to be cut in this sort of snake-like pattern. He said it wouldn't really work. This is the kind of stuff I was learning <laughs> instead of finding out about money or taxes or the economy or entrepreneurship or law or economics or anything. Ah, but I did learn how to impractically design stained glass. Thank you. Thank you, government education. But it's kind of like that. The land gets subdivided and subdivided, and then it becomes incredibly inefficient to farm. There's endless family squabbles. I mean, if you've ever had two dysfunctional kids or kids from a dysfunctional family in the backseat, they put one finger over the middle. Hey, you're on my side, that kind of stuff. Well, that happens with the land. The battles over land and inheritance are considerable. You would try and bleed off some of the kids from the land by sending them to the sea, sending them into the army, of course, sending them into the clergy if you had an intellectual or language-based offspring. But the land was just getting ridiculously complicated. And this became a huge issue for power, political power, because if your land is really inefficient and you can't farm it properly, then you don't have much food to tax. And if you don't have much food to tax, how are you going to feed your army? So it became an urgent matter of national security to rationalize the land. And the only way to do that was to start to open up the land to being bought and sold. And you would then buy and sell the land, but you had to liberate people from being bought and sold with the land, like livestock, as I sort of mentioned before. So you would be able to buy and sell the land and kick the people off it. I don't say kick the people off it. Like, you know, if you sell your house, you're not exactly getting kicked out unjustly. If you sell your car, you don't get to keep using it, right? So what would happen is they began to detach people from being embedded into the land and bought and sold with the land. And what that meant was that the most efficient farmers could buy up the most land and thus raise the productivity of the land. And again, I write about this in my novel, Just Poor. You should really check it out. It's a great book at freedomain.com slash books. It's free. And the whole process of letting the most efficient farmers, the most productive farmers, those with that magic green thumb, the 10x farmers, the 20x farmers, and I'm not kidding, 10 times, 20 times, that was the agricultural improvements. Letting the most efficient farmers buy the most land, or not letting them, but if you're a really efficient farmer, you can bid the most for the land, right? Because you can make the most money out of it, therefore you can spend more to buy it. So letting the most efficient farmers accumulate the most land raised agricultural productivity, but kicked a lot of people off the land. Where did they go? Well, they went to the cities. And you've got a base of cheap labor. Wherever there's a base of cheap labor, people will move in to utilize that as a resource. And those people tend to be very interested in property rights. You've got the birth of corporatism or corporations. You have a lot of wild stuff going on in the economy. And control of the land by the most efficient farmers created excess food to the point where you could feed a bigger army. And so state power grew with freedom, as it generally does, right? You get some freedom, you get some efficiency. The state swoops in to scoop up that additional revenue or resource and uses it to swell its own power. Now, the middle class are very interesting. So if you look at the clergy, obviously the clergy is otherworldly, right? They're, they're focused on the afterlife. They're focused on heaven and on hell and on God and the soul, and they're otherworldly. They don't have that base bourgeois practicality. They don't particularly care about math, whereas, of course, if you've 
ever run a business concern, you know that math is pretty absolute. You have to be very practical. You can't drift into otherworldly daydreams when you are in the bourgeois, right? You have to hire people. You have to make sure you pay them. You have to sell enough goods. You have to accumulate enough resources. You have to have enough capital. It's a daily grind of math and practicality, and it kind of mashes your face into tangible, practical, material reality in a way that almost nothing else can. It's like one of the reasons, though I didn't like it at the time, that I was grateful for working up north was, you know, as a, as a language guy, I could talk myself in and out of stuff pretty easily. But you can't talk the gold out of the ground, and you can't talk heat into your tent, and you can't talk away dangers out there, whether they're nature, like our camp was attacked by a bear one night, whether it's cold or machinery or falling or cutting or slipping or like just dangerous stuff. You couldn't talk your way out of it. It gives you sort of practical reality, which is one of the reasons why state power has often disliked the bourgeoisie, right? I mean, you could see in many ways under COVID, the uh, petty bourgeoisie, the small business owners got hit incredibly hard. And communists, of course, hate the bourgeoisie almost more than anything else because it's really it's a grounded rational practical reality and you can't get things like the age of reason you can't get the enlightenment you can't get the scientific method if you don't have some seriously practical people in your society and you can't get seriously practical people in your society if there are illiterate peasants violent nobility and otherworldly clergy at the center so bourgeois is the beginning of empiricism this is one of the reasons i love capitalism it makes you empirical because you have to deal with facts. You have to deal with math. As my early business mentor said, cash flow is king, cash flow is king. <laughs> you have to just deal with the facts. As they come along, and the facts, and the practicality, and the productivity, easy to tax, easy to control, but undermines some of the otherworldliness of the clergy and undermines the otherworldly and violent justifications for the nobility. When you deal with somebody who is a baker, somebody who is a, a, a plumber, well, I guess that would be a little bit later when they started to have plumbing, <laughs> but when you deal with somebody who is a tanner or a, uh, a sort of some sort of bourgeois producer, well, you work, you get some coin, or you barter with him, he gives you your shoes, gives you your bread, fixes your wall. It's very practical. And when you deal with people in this kind of practical way, to mutual advantage, to mutual advantage, it's revolutionary. <laughs> I know this sounds odd. It is incredibly revolutionary. When you deal with people who are helping you and you're helping them and you trade, as all free trade is, to mutual advantage, you're both better off, at least the perception is, you're both better off having made the trade. Think of the last thing you bought. The last thing I bought was a little portable recorder so I didn't have to fire up a computer when I wanted to stroll around and talk. I bought a little... I'm recording on it now. Think of the last thing you traded. Well, this little portable, portable recorder cost me $70. I wanted the portable recorder more than I wanted my $70. And the people who made this portable recorder wanted my $70 more than they wanted a portable recorder. I'm sure they're not short of portable recorders. They make them. So we're both better off. Mutual advantage. The, the sort of cynical phrase is dry calculations of mutual utility. 
oh, that's paradise. <laughs> Please give me dry calculations of mutual utility. That's beautiful. Beautiful. We're both better off. I mean, in the realm of romance, you ask a woman out on a date, she comes out with you on a date, you both expect to be better off as the result of going on that date. Otherwise, you, one or both of you wouldn't go, wouldn't happen. Now, there can be bias regret, but we're talking about in the moment, right? So when you deal with people and you're both gaining advantage from the interaction, I'll give you five loaves of bread, you fix my shoes. Well, you want fixed shoes more than you want the five loaves of bread, and the guy who's fixing your shoes wants to get the five loaves of bread more than he wants to save the time he's spending six, uh, fixing your shoes. You're both better off. Mutual advantage. And you only interact with people to mutual advantage. That's beautiful. Now, people who are cynical about that or who put it down, dry calculations and mutual utility or the predation of the price gouging, all they're saying is they don't have anything of value to offer. That's the only reason there's all that cynicism. It's all a blinding camouflage for the desire, the thirst, the bottomless thirst to exploit, to get things from you without having to return value, or the value that is returned is just leaving you alone. Pay me, and I'll leave you alone. Give me your money, and I won't stick a shiv in your ribs. Well, that's not to mutual advantage. So when you start to get artisans, tradesmen, bourgeois, and middle class, people who only trade to mutual advantage, you start to get used to this idea of mutual advantage. It's incredible. It's incredible. There are a billion people out in the world who want to sell you something. More. Billions of people out in the world want to sell you something. How many things do you buy on any particular day? Not much. They can't force you to buy from them. So when you have a growing class in society that only trades for mutual benefit, voluntarily for mutual benefit. What happens is something begins to seep into everybody's minds and thoughts, begins to seep in, which is like, wait a minute. There's kind of a difference here between my local lord, my senior, my local lord, and the baker. And the baker, but I don't, I don't have to deal with the baker. I only deal with the baker when we can trade for mutual advantage. He doesn't have to deal with me. But the Lord just takes stuff from me or stabs me. So you start to see a divergence in mindsets. And the state loves the bourgeoisie because they generate taxes and they generate wealth and they generate soldiers and they generate food people who trade for mutual advantage love them but but they are creating a different mindset a very different paradigm in society which is does this interaction benefit me it's a big it's a big question does this interaction benefit me is this trade for mutual advantage once you start to get trade to mutual advantage trade selfishly this is the big insight of Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. He said it is not from the selflessness of the baker or the butcher that we get our bread and our meat, but from their healthy regard to their own self-interest. It is selfishness, the invisible hand, selfishness, mutual advantage. 
Well, when you have a society founded on exploitation, as an aristocratic king-based society undoubtedly is, based upon violence and exploitation, and into that starts to come this angel of voluntarism, this angel of free trade, this angel of mutual advantage. Nobody can force you. It's only if you will be better off from the trade that the trade or the interaction actually occurs. And this combines with, a lot of times, our, the reason why it's so powerful, it combines with our daily experiences. I'm sure you've had, you know, <laughs> I saw a meme the other day, and uh, there's a little bit of truth in it, where, you know, the nightmare scenario is someone who's an acquaintance, and you said, oh, we should just get together, we should get together sometime. You're just saying that to be polite and maybe to get out of the conversation. The nightmare is when that person takes it seriously and says, oh, I'm free Thursday at 6 p.m. I can do Saturday at 4 p.m. Uh, here's, and, and you're like, no, no, no. It's <laughs> just being polite. We do this all the time. Right? You are listening to me because you hope to find something of value in what it is that I'm saying. Some clarity, some understanding, some encapsulation of things that you kind of instinctively understand but need words need language so instead of feeling your way around the world like at night and you're feeling your way towards the bathroom hoping not to step into something or i'm sure you've done this occasionally where you know there's little stoppers behind the door that prevent it from hitting into the wall <laughs> the things i love cats love playing with those things so instead of groping your way through the world in the dark and bumping into things philosophy can switch the light on and you can navigate and you know what it is you're listening to this in the hopes of gaining advantage. And you're continuing to listen to this. I know you got this far, right? You're continuing to listen to this because I am providing advantage. I am providing. Otherwise, you would have turned this off long ago. I know, I know, I know, I know that you are providing, that you're receiving advantage from what it is that I'm doing. There's value. Now, I, of course, hope that you will freedomain.com slash donate, help out the show, pay for the value that you receive, but I put this on the most voluntary basis, on the most voluntary basis, so that you get the chance to be generous. You get the chance to achieve virtue by voluntarily paying for the value that I'm providing. So we do this on a daily basis. What you listen to, what you watch, a video game you play, you're expecting to get advantage out of it. Whatever you consume, whoever you talk to, whoever you interact with, it's all voluntary for the most part, right? So... When what happens in your private conversation that you see some guy down the road walking towards you that you want to avoid, you'll turn up a side alley, cross the street, uh, <laughs> duck into a shop, whatever it is, right? You'll do all of that because you want to avoid him. So you have conversations for mutual advantage. You have a dating, a romantic life, a sexual life to mutual advantage. And if it's not to mutual advantage, it ends. So it kind of coincides with our personal life. Then our economic life begins to coincide with our personal life. And then we have two places where we trade words, body fluids, <laughs> time, attention for, for mutual advantage. We have the personal life. We have our economic life. And then the rest of society begins to be like, well, hang on. This is, this is different. Now, now this is, if everything's the same, everything's exploitation, everything's force, everything's bullying, coercion. Uh, but when you get the petty bourgeois coming along, you get the middle class coming along. Well, they trade to mutual advantage, and that begins to have people look askance. That's a word that should be used more often. People look askance at the rest of society, and they really notice. 
that it sucks. <laughs> that it sucks. If you have a hell and brimstone style preacher, right? And you go dressed in your Sunday natty best. You go sit in the hard pews with the well-thumbed choir books. And I won't bellow at the top of my lungs here. I'll just let you imagine. I don't want to startle anyone. Not that you'd ever listen to this to go to sleep. It just won't work. But you got some hellfire brimstone teacher, preacher who's up there. Gesticulating, jumping up and down, cursing you as a sinner. Who's going to go to hell if you don't reform and fight yourself? And every thought is an enemy that will put you in the pocket of Satan himself. And you're going to lose your soul. You got to pay. You got to obey. Okay, I know not all preachers are like that. Some are more inspiring and positive. People with more positive dispositions view God as loving. People with more negative dispositions view God as Old Testament thunderous, right? It's Old Testament, New Testament, which is really a change in parenting. I will get to that another time. But that's not how the baker is dealing with you. The baker, what does the baker do? Puts a sign outside his shop. You can get 12 bumbleberry pies. I don't even know what a bumbleberry is, but it always makes my mouth water. You can get 12 bumbleberry pies for the price of 10. And what does he do? He opens the door. He wafts out the scent of his baking. He's up at 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock baking. Finest ingredients. So good. Actually, my mouth is watering now. I probably should have eaten before recording. But hey, let's push through <laughs> to mutual advantage. That's what the baker does. He's enticing you in. He's offering you deals. He's offering you specials. He's cutting prices. He's putting out his best. And he, he can't force you into his shop. He can't force you to buy. He's not... He's not Sitting out front. I know this sounds a bit odd, but just go with me for a second, right? The baker is not sitting out front of his shop, screaming at you that you will go to hell and burn for eternity if you don't buy his mincemeat pie. Only Satan will cause you to pass by. If you don't come in, you'll be damned for eternity and you'll, you will burn and your eyes will... Like, that would be a little bit of an odd marketing campaign, to put it mildly, right? You're evil if you don't buy, right? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of virtue signaling corporations. You're a good person if you buy X, Y, and Z. But it's not the same. So, the aristocrat says, obey me or I'll cut you down. The clergy says, obey us, or you go to hell, and we promise you heaven. And the baker says, man, these pies are great. Would you like some? It's totally up to you. You can walk by. It's totally up to you. But doesn't this smell good? Oh, and by the way, it's, it's, it's a two-for-one special right now. It's so good. Have a sample. Have a, try a little. Try, try a little. You will. It's like an angel crying on your tongue. Like, you will love this pie. People can see the difference and they begin to feel the difference and they begin to resent the force that formerly they accepted have you ever had this i really want to want to get this idea ground into your marrow <laughs> voluntarily peacefully have you ever had this situation where you've been in a not great romantic relationship right maybe i mean dating could be marriage or whatever right and you kind of get used to it, and it's just, 
you know, like the fish in the water. What water? You're just kind of used to it. And then something happens, the relationship ends, and you meet a really nice person. <laughs> you meet a really nice person. Sweet, considerate, thoughtful, wise, curious, loving. And what you formally accepted, it's just, yeah, this is normal, is now completely denormalized by this new relationship. Right? I mean, I dated women in my youth. You, you couldn't get them to make you a cup of coffee sometimes because apparently that's just oppression by the patriarchy, right? And then when you meet a generous woman who wants to help and is, is thoughtful and considerate, and of course that, you know, heals you and brings that out in you and it becomes mutual and it's a beautiful thing. And then all that seemed kind of normal before, because you have a new relationship, you look back and you're like, God, that was hell. <laughs> it was hell, but I just acclimatized. It was hell, but I was just used to the burns. It was hell. And now I see it. Whereas if you just stay in those bad relationships, and I'm not saying, you know, I know people whose uh, former wives and girlfriends pulled guns on them. I knew a guy when I was younger, his ex-girlfriend pulled a knife on him. I'm not talking about anything that extreme, although that can certainly happen. I'm just talking when you're dating someone who's, you know, not particularly nice, kind of selfish and kind of suspicious and hard-eyed and hard-hearted and all of that. And then you meet someone who's got that soft, nougaty, loving center and it's just like, ah, oh, lovely. Or, you know, if you've ever sat in a bath too long, <laughs> I don't know how many analogies I can throw at this. If you've ever sat in a bath too long and I remember reading, um, sitting in a bath reading Crime and Punishment and I just, I didn't even want to pause to get out of the bath. Well, what happens is the bath gets, gets colder and colder. <laughs> it's just like, oh man, this is horrible. And... So if you've been in those relationships, they're kind of normal, the bad stuff's normal, and then later you get out of it, even if you just get out of it and don't get into another relationship, or if you get into a great relationship, you look back and you say, what the hell was I thinking? How could I have normalized that? How could I have accepted that? It's kind of incomprehensible to you. Now, of course, you end up in bad relationships, usually because you have aggressive parents and aggressive teachers and maybe aggressive priests and aggressive family members, or siblings, whatever, right? So you're just kind of used to it all, right? But when that one person comes along, and I think for some people this show is, or I am, that person, someone comes along and says, blah, 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 shake your head, get your head out of the past. I was going to say out of something else. <laughs> get your head out of the past. Get your head out of the past de-normalize this, but you have to have a different kind of relationship or a chance to cool down or calm down in order to denormalize it. Otherwise, you're just on this, this treadmill. Just everything seems the same and you don't denormalize it. And so the reason I'm saying all of this is you have an abusive relationship, often with a very aggressive clergy, and we'll get to that as we talk about childhood about the French Revolution. But the French Revolution starts with the middle class. That's why I'm spending so much time with this. I appreciate your patience. Starts with the middle class because the middle class, by being voluntary and trading for mutual advantages, begins to highlight how terrible all the other abusive, brutal, violent, whether it's physical violence in the case of the aristocracy or horrifying eternal verbal abuse on the part of the more aggressive members of the clergy, The baker says, you want some pie? 
You can walk them by, but you can get some by. Whereas the aristocracy is do what I say, or I'll stick you with a knife, and the clergy is often do what I say, or you'll go to hell forever. And then there's this guy on the street corner offering you some pie, which you can say no to. So the emergence of the bourgeoisie, this is why tyrants hate the middle class. Tyrants hate, this is why America, Canada, other US, they're really working at shrinking the middle class. Because the middle class denormalizes verbal and physical violence. Trade to mutual advantage denormalizes exploitation. So I really wanted to make that case, and we'll see. We'll see how this plays out. Now, so of course the middle class, we're going back to the emergence in the Middle Ages of the middle class in France. So the middle class, of course, has diverse cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, because there's just a certain amount of talent that gets scattered across the world. Scattershot, again, my novel Just Poor goes into this in more detail. There's just a certain amount of talent that just gets scattershot across the world. Nobody would look at my early life and say, ah, this guy is destined to be a a fairly big intellect and, and philosopher and so on, right? There's just talent that's scattered across the world, and the free market is constantly looking for talent because the difference between business success and failure is talent. It's just talent. If you happen to get one of these programmers who's 100 times more productive than another programmer, you'll win. You'll just win. You'll just win. And what's it? There's a, it was a somewhere on, on Twitter, somebody was saying that a business is successful until it hires its first moron and the task is to <laughs> postpone that for as long as possible. So, yeah, a lot of different cultural backgrounds. A lot of, you, know, you just get the high IQ, you get the drive, you get the high testosterone, whatever it's going to be that's that alchemical mix plus free will that gives you entrepreneurial abilities. So there's a lot of diverse socioeconomic cultural backgrounds and so on. But there are some real common elements. And this is in particular for the young. So, there are three core principles that really emerged with the bourgeoisie. Number one, the male figure should ensure the well-being of mothers and children. The male figure should ensure the well-being of mothers and children. This became, and this of course is a biblical obligation, that the God is to the man as man is to the wife. But the idea of being a protector... If you look at Chaucer, you look at sort of early Middle Ages, late Roman stuff, Dark Ages stuff, like Dickensian stuff, obviously, that's much later. But marriage is portrayed as, you know, the henpecked husband who drinks and rages at the wife. There's beatings, there's, right? The idea of the husband being a protector. Well, that's important. The husband has to provide value. The middle class has to provide value in order to survive. This is why the middle class is both very excitable and energetic and also anxious because, you know, they're hanging by a thread of inability or laziness or incompetence or mistake above the chasm of the lower classes, which they have often tunneled their way out of and would do almost anything to avoid returning to. So you only get into the middle class by providing value to your customers. So that translates, whether it's cause and effect, there's no way to know. It coincides, let's say. The idea that the 
man who's the baker has to provide value to his customers coincides with the idea that the baker as the husband has to provide value to his wife and his children. You must protect. Providing, yes, but protection comes out in the bourgeoisie. So, because you have to ensure the well-being of mothers and children, you have to create a nurturing environment at home and a dedication to the education and skill development of both boys and girls. And for middle-class women, being able to stay home and not work became a significant symbol of status of their position. Right? Now, if you create a business, then you want the business to stay in the family. Right? You create a big Bakery, you're going to get old, you're going to want to retire. If you have, I mean, this is prior to eyeglasses, so if you have calligraphy or some detailed printing business or something uh, that requires uh, you threading needles and stuff, well, your eyes are going to age out and you're going to need to hand it over long before you get very old, for the most people, to your kids. Now, you say, ah, yes, well, but... You'd really only educate the boys, right? It wasn't like there were many girls who could own businesses and so on. Well, depends where you look, but women were often allowed to own businesses. It just was not common for a variety of reasons. We, I'm sure, are pretty clear. So if you have a business, you don't want your business to die with you because that's a significant amount of value that can be maintained. So, of course, if you just scream at and beat your children... They won't grow up to be good entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs have to have a positivity to them. They have to have a charisma. They have to have a confidence. And so if you just smash and destroy your children, they'll be too broken to continue your business. And you want to continue your business. Now, that's why you don't torture and beat your children. And this is why when we look back at John Locke, he says, don't hit your children. <laughs> it's going to smash them and break them and so on. And who was reading John Locke was the entrepreneurs, the middle class. Now, of course, it happens. Right? Everything happens. But the general principle is don't smash up your kids. <laughs> if you smash up your kids, they'll be too broken to run your business. And they'll also probably be addicts, and, and that will destroy a business. I mean, the way to destroy a business is to have an addict run it and pillage it. I've heard this a number of times. I'm sure we all have. Right? So you don't want to beat your children. You want to educate them about your business. You want to give them awfully math instruction. You want to give them supply chain instruction. You want to give them profit and loss, how to measure things. And also you want to how to be appealing. You teach them how to be appealing, how to get customers and so on, right? So that's your sons. Now, you say, ah, oh, but what about the daughters? Ah, oh, well, <laughs> as the father of a daughter, let me tell you. So let's say that you only educate your sons and you don't educate your daughters. Right? You, you put them to work and they don't even learn math, really. They don't learn anything like that. Okay, well, let's say you only have daughters. You have two daughters. Let's just make the math easy. You have two daughters and you don't teach them anything. Okay, well, if you don't teach your daughters anything then they will not be able to attract an educated man because an educated man doesn't want to be with a dullard, uneducated daughter or wife, right? He's not gonna. So in order for your 
daughters to be attractive to the kind of educated and intelligent man you need to take over your business, you have to educate your daughters and you can't smash and beat them up. Otherwise, your business dies with you because quality men won't be attracted. And this is why, of course, women learned piano, they learned singing, they learned Latin, so that they could have great conversations, and through having great conversations, they could attract a quality man, the quality man could maintain the value of the business. And so, yep, because you can't get your money through brutality. You have to get it through voluntarism, which means you need quality people, intelligent people, charismatic people. So the bourgeois father needs to be gentle with his children and educate them. So affluent families, especially those in business or white-collar professions, had the means to delegate much of the household and childcare tasks to hired help, which is similar to what the aristocrats were doing. I mean, even in the face of emerging guidance, some mothers would opt for wet nurses. This neglect allowed mothers to focus on engaging with their children's amusement and guiding their ethical and spiritual development. Notably, a growing trend among these bourgeois families was the inclination to segregate children and adults within the household setting. It's kind of new. You'd drink in front of kids earlier on. You'd have sex in front of kids. There really wasn't a distinct sense of childhood in the way that we would understand it as a whole, which is why children are generally invisible to philosophers throughout history, until, until the bourgeois setting. So, this is important. And, of course, this experiment goes on and on and on. The experiment goes on, and it's not like one generation, it's five generations, ten generations. And what happens is, the kids of the wet nurses, right, the kids who are farmed out to, I don't want to say these villains, but these women desperate enough to just be human milking machines. Obviously, these are women not in stable marriages. These are women not being loved. These are women not being protected. They're human baby bottles. So, if you have uh, two families, right? Everybody knows a bunch of families. Let's just say two families. One of them has the mother stay home and breastfeed, and the other has the mother farm out the kids to wet nurses. Okay, well, you can see how this plays out. And everybody knows. Everybody knows. Oh, wow, these kids who are farmed out to the wet nurses, they die a lot more, they're more unstable, they're more aggressive, their teenage years are more wild, they don't listen, they don't respect authority, they're blah, 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 right? So, it's a continual tweaking that happens. You don't need continual tweaking in the aristocracy, you don't need it in the clergy as much, you don't need it, well, I guess you had one with Martin Luther, uh, more than one, but you don't need this continual tweaking. Whereas in business, you constantly have to tweak things, you constantly have to innovate, right? There's a new iPhone every year or so, and I remember when I was in the tech world, you constantly have to upgrade. I'm constantly trying to upgrade this show at all times and under all circumstances. Like, I'm not doing this as a PowerPoint. I'm actually doing this walking around because I want to keep the blood flow going and I want to allow the passion to flow because it's such an abstract and obtuse topic that I want to make it visceral and meaty and bone marrow-based for you. So I'm constantly trying to innovate and be better at what I was doing. So here's a, here's a quote. 
Here's a quote. In short, some sections of the European aristocracy, notably in Britain, adopted some or all of the child-rearing practices promoted by Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his followers, including maternal breastfeeding, close attention from the mother, and a concern with education. Yet tradition weighed heavily in this milieu, keeping children at arm's length from their parents, most evidently according to the existing historiography in France and Imperial Russia. Ah, you see, France, and I'm just breaking out of the quote here, France and Imperial Russia, the two most destructive revolutions. What were they? The French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Where were kids treated the worst in general? In France and in Russia. Now, I know it's kind of a goosebump association. I'm not saying I've proven anything. I want to be very cautious in promoting this thesis because I don't want confirmation bias from you or from me. Feels true, which means you have to be very suspicious about whether it is true, but there's some important things. The quote continues, the habit of associating affectionate parenting during any period exclusively with the bourgeoisie and one small section in particular, the reasonably affluent professional and commercial classes. The habit of associating affectionate parenting one small section, in particular the reasonably affluent professional and commercial classes. The free market improves parenting. The fact that I'm a free market absolutist and a peaceful parent is not a coincidence. The two, the two mindsets operate on the same principles. The quote continues. Peasants and workers had their own ways of loving children, and the middle class had their share of good, bad, and indifferent parents. The fact remains that the urban bourgeoisie played a prominent role down the centuries in creating a suitable environment for close relationships with their young. Right. Now, let's do a little bit of a deep dive here. This is just a touch, not proving, just building up the associations. Just building up the associations. Every paint stroke makes the painting. No single paint stroke is the painting. So, When you were growing up, did you have wealthier kids around? Did you have kids from more stable and happy families? I certainly did. I certainly did. Now, the people who do well have an uneasy relationship with those who do badly, and in particular, parents and children. Now, Abusive parents don't like peaceful parents. Bad parents don't like good parents because good parents denormalize the abuse that the bad parents are heaping on their children. I mean, ah, come on. I mean, if anybody knows the history of this show, they know all about this, right? Bad parents don't like good parents. Now, oh, you know the, the phrase that comes out of the lower classes or the... The, the trashy classes or the bad classes, or it's not just all about money. It's a lot of it's to do with mindset, but it significantly overlaps with money. Oh, what do they say there? Oh, you think you're, you think you're too good for us. Oh, you think you're so great, right? Anything that elevates, anything that's an improvement is railed against. 
by the lower classes. The lower classes, often associated with dysfunctional or abusive parenting, the parents of the children of the lower classes hate the bourgeoisie. They hate the bourgeoisie, and it's, it's complex. It's two, two things. Sorry, it's complex, and it's only two things, but these two things are very complex themselves. So, there's two reasons that the victims of abuse hate the bourgeoisie. One is their parents hate the affectionate functional parents because they want to exploit, the bad parents want to exploit their children their whole lives if the children denormalize the abuse the parents did, then they won't want to spend time with the parents, or they will demand apologies which the parents are functionally unable to provide without being manipulative. Like, once you've been manipulative decade after decade, you can't be honest, you can't be straight. Any more than if you've had bad posture for 40 years, you can suddenly be ramrod tall. Your spine has changed. You've got the damages hump. So, number one, the parents, the dysfunctional, abusive parents, raise their children to have hostility towards the functional parents. Right? And you can see this all the preppies and the yuppies. Remember the yuppies, the 80s and the 90s? Oh, got the beamer. You know, they'd always have these sweaters they weren't wearing, but just kind of draped over them. And there was this hostility and this hatred towards the young urban professionals. Yeah, that's exactly this group that works hard to have good relationships to their children, with their children, work hard to be peaceful and reasonable, not abusive, right? The yuppies, everyone hates the yuppies. And there's this hostility that comes from the parents. The bad parents hate the good parents, but they can't say that directly, so they just have to create all of this mythology about the good parents. Uh, the movie Blue Velvet, David Lynch, it starts off, it's this beautiful suburban lawn, zooms in, there are all these creatures fighting and killing and dying under the grass. Good people are shallow, good people are stupid. Good people don't have any passion. The real meat of the matter is in the dysfunction. Dysfunction good, the, quote, good people, either hypocritical or bad. And this is why everybody loves it when a supposedly good person has a flaw. You know, the televangelists with their affairs. and so, Good person has a flaw. Aha! It's all a fake. It's all a front. So, bad parents hate the good parents. But they can't say it directly. They can't say, I hate that good parent for being a good parent. That's kind of giving away the game. So, they have to create all of this. Oh, they're so vain. Oh, they think they're so good. Oh, they were just lucky. Right? And I understand that. I understand that. I mean, one of my big theological moments was when I was uh, in my late teens. I ran a software and hardware consulting business, which was me. I mean, it was not some big thing, right? And I went up and I wired a guy's house. This is before Wi-Fi. I wired his house for all his computers through the walls and stuff like that. And he had a beautiful house. I was living in a tiny little room, Raskolnikov style, and he had a beautiful house. And I said, wow, this is a beautiful house you have here. And he's like, yes, yes. God has been good to me. <sighs> kind of annoying. Why God just doesn't like me. 
guys, guys just like, oh, no, sorry, you get to be, you get to live in a crazy house and have no money and a well, crazy house. It was like a tiny apartment. But God's good to this guy who doesn't like me or whatever. It's, you know, it's a challenge. And that there is a certain pomposity in all of that. And how do you deal with good fortune? How do you deal with good fortune? Do you hoard it and run away with it? Or do you risk being exploited by trying to share your good fortune? Right? It's like you win the lottery, right? Do you go to Thailand and set up your own little kingdom and, and live on it there? Or do you say, wow, now I have all this money. I'm really going to help family and friends and then just get pillaged, right? I mean, it's tough. What do you do with good fortune? I mean, I know I have some good fortune in my brain and my language abilities and so on. I'm trying to spread the good fortune, but it's tough. You know, it's tough. You know, there's certainly been times when part of me just wants to run away and enjoy my good fortune and not circle back, right? So there's two reasons. Remember, I said there were two reasons. So one reason is that the bad parents will endlessly attempt to provoke hostility towards good parents in their children so that the good parents don't want to spend time with the bad parents and their kids, and that way the bad parenting doesn't get denormalized, right? You understand? It's like everybody knows the dysfunctional boyfriend or the dysfunctional girlfriend will work to keep your friends away, right? Because the, the crazy girlfriend doesn't want your friends saying, man, she's crazy. What, in the hot, crazy matrix, she doesn't even have the heart, but she's got turbo 12, Mach 10, hair on fire, nutso going on. So isolation, separation, bad people want to keep good people away from you. You know, if some guy's running a scam on you, he doesn't want your accountant uncle coming over and listening in, right? Because he's going to not get what he wants out of that, right? So that's number one. Number one is the bad parents want to keep their kids away from the good parents, and so they portray the good parents as bad, and so on, right? Now... That's number one. Number two, which kind of grows out of this, it's kind of wound into this like two trees growing together, is, first of all, of course, the kids from the abusive parents end up being programmed by the abusive parents to dislike the healthy parents, the healthy world, the healthy society. So they're already predisposed to have their hate on for the functional people. But there's another aspect, which is being left behind. Ooh, that's a big one. Being left behind. There are all these people moving on with their lives and they don't acknowledge how tortured you are. They don't acknowledge how abused you are. They just move on. They go into their castles. They raise their drawbridge. They have their parties. They laugh. They dance. They sing while you rot in a flaying hellscape of bladed dysfunction with crazy, aggressive, abusive, violent parents and everybody who's functional has just sailed off, left you behind with the predators, with the monsters, and they don't circle back and they don't help. They just take their accidental good fortune and F off to parts unknown, leaving you behind. And how dare they enjoy their lives and laugh and sing and play and dance and have their charades after a lovely dinner. How dare they have this great plastic, wonderful life while you're rotting under the 
flaying bladed tentacles of other people's fists and sharp bloody vampiric tongues how dare they not come back for me and not even notice and not say anything and not say anything I mean they're over at my house they don't say anything they meet my mother they meet my father they don't say anything we have two worlds that overlap, but I have to pretend my world doesn't exist to even set one foot in their world. I can't say anything. I can't ask for help. They're like the elves in Lord of the Rings. They just leave. But in the middle of the worst battle, a lot of hostility towards the functional from the victims of abuse. And this is part of me, for those who are vaguely interested, and I'll keep it very brief, this is the essence of my life's work. Yeah, I got out. I got out. I got out of abuse. I got out of a bad situation. I have a wonderful family, great friends, meaningful career. And I could have, you know, done the economics and the politics and abstract moral philosophy and so on. But no. But no. I will always come back. I will always come back. Just because I think I'm a pretty nice person, but also because I'm very aware of what happens to society if the victims of abuse are just left abandoned and everybody sails on to new lives, better lives, and never looks back. No, thank you. Here's another quote. The climate of opinion in middle and upper class families during the 18th and 19th centuries was susceptible to the influence of enlightened thinkers. There were moves to discourage parents from trying to beat the old Adam out of children in order to guarantee their eternal salvation. Instead, advice manuals adopted a more secular framework, advising that a loving parent would do better to work with the grain of a child deemed innocent and in need of gentle but firm guidance towards virtue. So work with the grain. If you cut with the grain, it's easier. If you work, cut against the grain, it's harder in wood. So they're saying, yeah, work with your child's nature and gentle but firm guidance towards virtue, rather than you have to beat the original sin out of your child, right? Spare the rods for the child. The quote continues. This is, by the way, is from Childhood in Modern Europe, which came out in 2018 by Colin Haywood. The quote continues about the gentle but firm guidance towards virtue. There were signs of this having an effect with examples of mothers taking a close interest in the upbringing of their children, fathers departing from the role of strict patriarch and gentler forms of discipline. However, it is likely that many families had taken a similar approach during earlier periods. It is also clear that the urban middle classes had a long history of domesticity, sheltering the family from the rest of society and showing concern for the education and cultural life of their offspring. Moreover, the forces of continuity were still much in evidence, with wealthy parents in particular often limiting contact with their children in the home, sending their sons away to school at an early age and relying on corporal punishment. Now, the sending kids off to boarding school was much more of a characteristic of the aristocracy because... You send your kids to boarding school, you brutalize them, isolate them from parents to the point where they don't 
develop empathy, and if they don't develop empathy, they'll be good at thrashing peasants and ruling the world and so on. So, so the middle class, I hate to use the word cyst, you know, like where your body sort of forms a tissue barrier to contain some negative thing. A moat, they, they went into their castles and dropped their moats. The isolation of the middle class is very important. So, the people who were most in a position to help the victims of child abuse were those who'd been raised better or who were raising their children better. Either they didn't know how, either they cowed, cowered away from the task. Maybe it was too overwhelming. Maybe they were just so relieved to be out of a, an abusive situation that the last thing they wanted to do was, was go back. But these were the, the people in the most position to help society as a whole. But oftentimes, the people who escape abusive situations and end up in better situations, well, it's like breaking out of prison. You don't want to go back to prison. It's like being rescued from a desert island. You don't want to go back to the desert island. You know, Matt, the, the, the costs and the consequences of not going back to help those left behind is enormous. And we saw this, of course, in communism. And we see this in the French Revolution, as we're talking about here. Maybe I'll do something similar for the Russian Revolution in time. More controversial, but also more powerful in many ways. So, they isolated themselves from the world around them. They moved to their own neighborhoods. Think of like the suburbs, right? Move to their own neighborhoods. They only socialize amongst themselves. And there's some poor relief. In other words, they will give some money to the poor. But in terms of instructing on better parenting, it just, it doesn't exist. Like good parenting manuals for the average person. Well, they're really hard to see. And certainly the Enlightenment philosophers were talking about you know, property rights and the rule of law and the end of slavery. And these are all good things. But if you're not dealing with childhood, you're not, can, you're not creating any sustainable progress. I mean, if you look at the idealism in which a country like America was founded, and you look at how it's traversed the years, the centuries, you can see that if you're not dealing with childhood, you're truly building your house on sand. So, when we're looking at the isolation of the middle class, here's a, another quote from the book Childhood in Modern Europe. The middling ranks of society had a long history of domesticity as far back as the 14th century among the English bourgeoisie, bourgeois. The older version involved a household family, including all those living in the same house under the authority of its master, with a routine of working as well as living together in the home. Hence the ideal was that of a household where the male head worked at his craft or his trade, assisted by his wife, children, apprentices, journeymen, and servants. The late 18th and early 19th centuries ushered in the modern ideal of domesticity, which centered on the nuclear family alone, and its children in particular. Middle-class families were henceforth inclined to retreat from the wider world into their homes. Now, from a book by... Philippe Aris, Centuries of Childhood, A Social History of Family Life, we read, and I quote, When the middle class could no longer bear the pressure of the multitude or the contact of the lower class, it seceded. It withdrew from the vast polymorphous society to organize itself separately 
in a homogenous environment among its families, in homes designed for privacy, in new districts kept free from all lower-class contamination. The juxtaposition of inequalities, hitherto something perfectly natural, became intolerable to it. The revulsion of the rich preceded the shame of the poor. The quest for privacy and the new desires for comfort which it aroused, for there is a close connection between comfort and privacy, emphasized even further the contrast between the material ways of life of the lower and middle classes. The old society concentrated the maximum number of ways of life into the minimum of space and accepted, if it did not impose, the bizarre juxtaposition of the most widely different classes. The new society, on the contrary, provided each way of life with a confined space in which it was understood that the dominant features should be respected and that each person had to resemble a conventional model, an ideal type, and never depart from it under pain of excommunication. The concept of the family, the concept of class, and perhaps elsewhere the concept of race appear as manifestations of the same intolerance towards variety, the same insistence on uniformity. So rather than challenge the dominion of the abusive parents over their own children, rather than attempt to rescue the victims of abuse, the bourgeoisie, the middle class, they retreated to their Elysium fields. They retreated to their heaven on earth. And they no longer rub shoulders with the poor. And the poor, of course, are constantly trying to get in. Right, and you can see this with various housing initiatives in America and other places, zoning and so on, that the poor are constantly trying to get in to the better neighborhoods, into the gated communities. And the idea that you can retreat from the victims of child abuse, create your own country within a country, create your own castle with a moat, your own communities, your own suburbs, retreat and escape. Well, I think really one of the central purposes of my life and what I'm talking about in this presentation, which we'll get to in more detail with the French revolution, is you can't get away from the effects of child abuse. You can retreat for a time, and you can say, I want to be around more functional people, and that was the approach of the aristocracy. They did it through bloodlines. They did it through isolation in country estates. They did it through wealth and guards and literal moats and <laughs> drawbridges and so on. The church did it with cloistered houses attached to the church with monasteries, the getting away from dysfunction, getting away from the violence, getting away from the mess, getting away from the broken people, broken by child abuse. And what happens? Well, the more you get away, the more the resentment grows. And when the resentment grows enough, they will come for you. They will come for you. And yeah, so next we're going to talk about prior to the revolution, the state of pre-revolutionary France with a focus on childhood.